Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to episode 16 of the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. And I've been warning you about this interview for a couple of weeks now. And actually, we've just come straight off stage. I've just watched our uh, next interviewee do an amazing keynote speech. Our, Our VIP community absolutely loved him. And I think that this is possibly going to be one of the most important 40 minutes of interviews I can see no pressure, by the way. But of course, we're all used to success stories being all about the greatness and the motivation and the hunger and, you know, greatness, greatness, greatness and the the societal pressure of greatness. But I believe more than anything that there's a lot of vulnerability in greatness and success. And I believe when you hear people's true, honest story of their highs and lows, I think it's more, more inspiring because it's more real And it gives us an inner belief that we can do it too when others have done so great and then had challenges and then done great again. So I don't want to keep the suspense going on anymore, but I'm really privileged to have uh, Gerald Ratner uh, here on this podcast. So hi, Gerald. Hi, Rob. Now, Gerald's very well known in the UK. I've got subscribers in 60 different countries and I'm sure he's well well known across the world. But for those people who may be in the in maybe Africa and Russia and Asia who subscribe to this podcast. Could you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and maybe the the sort of the two different lives, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I uh, took over family business in the uh, late 70s that was struggling somewhat, losing money and doing what every other jeweller was doing, uh, which was basically being very posh and having chandeliers and velvet pads, and um, it was losing money, and uh, it was going to be taken over by H. Samuel, actually, because they'd bought 20% of the company, and I could see that the writing was on the wall. So I had to do something radical to change it. So we were doing quite badly everywhere, but there were two places we were doing particularly badly. One was Newcastle and one was Sunderland, and I was wondering why that was, and it was because there was a discounter up there called Robert Anthony, who was selling jewellery like nobody had ever sold it, with posters, pop music playing, big discounts, which I know is the norm these days, but in the late 70s, it's unheard of, where it was all prestige sort of stuff. So I copied him, basically, um, by discounting uh, everything in the shops, putting posters up, taking away the... The putting pricing everything, taking away the doors and having it all open and just making because it was a lot of young the demographics had changed in the 80s and there was a lot of young people that had money for the first time and they were spending it impulsively and they were spending it in Top Shop and they were spending it in Next uh, but they weren't spending it in the jewellers because they regarded it as too expensive so I, I just tuned into that it was hugely successful sales went through the roof and it enabled me to actually buy up most of my competitors, Ernest Jones, Leslie Davis, H. Samuel. And in fact, we also um, went to the States where we were very successful, although not by exporting that formula, which is a mistake that a lot of British retailers did. We actually bought very good management out there. Um, so we built up from this loss-making business uh, with a very small market cap to a huge organisation with 2,500 stores, making profits of £125 million pounds. 
and really on the crest of a wave, even though there was a recession going. And I was asked to make a speech at the uh, Institute of Directors at the Albert Hall, which is quite a prestigious thing. So I went along there and um, speech was quite straightforward, sensible type of speech. But um, somebody had suggested that I, when I'd sent a draft to uh, my co-directors, one of them had suggested that I put a couple of jokes in because they thought that uh, they like my... um, you know, they like my sense of humour. So I put in the two jokes, which was one I would have got away with, which was um, that we sell a pair of earrings for 99p, which we did, and gold earrings as well, which is the same price as a prawn sandwich from Marks and Spencer's. But I have to say that the sandwich probably lasts longer than the earrings. <laughs> and that was just probably funny and people like... The other one was not particularly funny, but I'd said it before, and that was uh, that how can we sell this sherry decanter at uh, such a low price, and my answer was because it was total crap, because retailers are always coming up with reasons why things are so cheap, which is that they cut out the middleman or they buy and buy, which you, I was so fed up with hearing that same thing the whole time that I thought I'd make a joke of it. Um, and in fact, I had made that joke, and it was published a few years before, and people laughed about it, but the difference was that this was a big event at the Albert Hall, and we were in a recession, and people were had lost their sense of humour to a certain degree because, you know, a lot of people couldn't pay their electricity bills. It was a very deep recession. So this joke went down like the proverbial lead balloon and the press were there and they, and they in fact, asked for um, a draft of the speech in advance, which was normal for the IOD. So it wasn't that I said things which is on Wikipedia behind people's backs or claimed it was a private function, you know. It was televised. Uh, and I said it as a joke and uh, who and here we are... 25 years later, uh, talking about it because it had the most horrendous repercussions, whereas, you know, the price was so negative that it affected the business that was doing so well in such a bad way. Firstly, Ratners, then they discovered that I owned others and that they started struggling. And So at that point, were you, you the biggest retailer of jewellery in the UK? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the annual turnover? Our annual turnover was, uh, at the time, was about one and a half billion. Wow. And uh, it went to what after the, after the speech? Well, Ratner's, uh, the Ratner's chain was, started dropping sales around 25%. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuels were down about 15%. You've got to remember that these businesses were putting on big increases mm. uh, prior to the speech. And in the jewellery business, because the margins are very high you can't sustain uh, a 25% drop because mm. it would put you into into loss, which it did. Yeah. Because we, instead of making the 200 million profit, which was forecast for that year by stockbrokers, uh, we lost 100 million. Mm. So it had the most dramatic effect that I think any anything has ever had on a business. And sure. So, yeah, it's gone down in history as the worst corporate blunder of all time. And you're here today, 25 years later, doing a speech about it. And, and laughing about it. Yeah. Because uh, what else could I do? Sure. So I remember reading your autobiography. So I'm, I must have been, what, about 30 at the time. And I, I found it really inspirational, so I want to thank you. And uh, not just for the main story, but yeah. the whole journey. And actually, I had a client uh, who was buying some properties, and I was coaching him. And uh, he had a down valuation on a property, and he was making it out like it was the biggest pain ever. And I said, he's from Newcastle, funnily yeah. enough, and he was getting on the train back, and it was about a three-hour journey. Mm-hmm. And I had your book. It was a hard copy, hardback. Yeah. And I gave him the book, and I said, read that on the train and tell me how you feel when you get yeah. to the other end of the... And he read the book, and he thanked me, and he's has like 35 properties now, and yeah. 
Uh, he's an accountant to a lot of successful property investors. And, and I think that's the true gift of what's happened to you is how it makes other people believe that they can recover from a setback. So do you mind sharing? Well, let's start with maybe what was the lowest point and then let's move on to how you recovered from the setback. So where, where did it take you? Yeah, I mean, it does. It is a fact that uh, there's a bit of schadenfreude there that people does cheer people up that somebody's made a worse because it is the number one corporate. It wouldn't be called doing a ratna. It would be called doing something else sure. if it wasn't the worst mistake of all time. And, so, and for people, those listeners who don't know what doing a ratna is, could you just explain what the press have made in that statement? Well, it's when somebody uh, does a basically to be perfectly pedantic about it, they should actually criticise their their own product for doing a ratna. But in fact, it's now used for anybody that screws up at right. all, yeah. uh, who says anything that really. Um, Bernie Eccleston. Well, actually, Bernie Eccleston actually did do a Ratner in its purest form because he he said that the uh, Formula One is uh, is crap. He said it's as bad as ever has been. But man, he's managed to carry on like that. Mm. But others have said things like, um, well, Matt Barrett said that the Barclay card was far too. He was the chief executive of Barclays Bank, so the Barclay card is too expensive. Uh, so people from time to time do that. But then you get accused. Of, you get people like. Volkswagen or BP get who, who get accused of doing they don't really doing a Ratner because mm. um, they've just something disastrous has happened to them so doing Ratner is really um, just criticizing your own product sure so so my lowest point yes was that um, I basically when I hired a chairman because I needed help because we were broken our covenants and we had massive debts and I was the chairman and chief executive so I hired a chairman to help me with banking. Well, I just, basically, if I hadn't hired a chairman, the shareholders probably would have kicked me out. Um, so the idea was to bring in a chairman to protect me. Mm. But then he fired me. Uh, so that wasn't much good, much of an idea. And that was a very low point uh, that I have a bad... I thought I might have been able to see it out because mm. uh, I was fighting it for 18 months after the speech. Mm. But he fired me and uh, then I read in the newspapers... And at the time, you know, when you're in the gutter, you believe all the negativity. I read in the newspapers that I'm unemployable, which I thought was very strange considering that I was voted retail of the year the year before. Mm. Uh, Ratner's shares had gone up more than any other company in the whole stock market. I was lauded for being, you know, a retail hero and all that sort of stuff. And then a minute later, I'm unemployable. So I, I was pretty low. And, and in fact, it turned out that I was unemployable, that mm. I couldn't get a job anywhere. So well, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are unemployed anyway, though, aren't they? I mean, you know, regardless. It's difficult after you've run a huge business to then work for somebody else. Mm. Cause, and I don't think, I think the chairman of a bank, if you put him in as a bank manager, he wouldn't make a particularly good job of it. Yeah. Mm. So I remember when I read your book, the two yeah. things I felt the most angry about were that you yeah. just said about the chairman. And I don't know the person, so I'm not judging the person. I just read in your book yes. that I felt angry about that. And then obviously what the press did to you. And yes. I'll talk about the press in a minute. But if I'm an outsider reading your book, yes. feeling angry for you, yes. I can't even imagine how you must have felt. Tell us how you felt and tell us how you dealt with it. Well, I was very proud of uh, what I achieved um, because Ratner's was not doing well when I took over. It was losing money. And we achieved so much. We basically had 50% of the jewellery market. It was unprecedented. We'd taken over all our competitors. Mm. We were one of the few retailers to succeed in America. 
we were defying the recession. I was very proud of that. Mm. We had a lot of young people in the business. You know, managers used to come up to me and say, you know, you gave me a chance. Uh, you know, I'm 23 and I'm running this big shop in Croydon or in East Belfast or somewhere like that. And they were, you know, it wasn't only me that was benefiting from success. And then the next minute, it had gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. We were like the laughing stock. I couldn't believe how it could change overnight. And we were like, as soon as you mentioned Ratner's, people laughed and uh, we were like the biggest disaster of all time. So that was <laughs> pretty... And, I, you know, I remember once walking my daughter in a pram um, in Hyde Park because I used to take her for a walk on a Sunday morning. And I, it dawned on me, I said, how the hell has this happened? Last week I was on the Christmas way. Now everything's wrong. I just, how did this happen? I know I made a mistake, but... How has it had such a massive impact? In fact, more people knew about the failure than they knew about the success. Mm. So I was it was like daggers being pushed into my stomach. It was about his payment. And I once read in Marketing Magazine that they said that he probably wakes up in the middle of the night, four o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat, thinking, well, how the hell did I do that? And I hadn't actually woken up in the middle of the night till then, but I read it and then I started waking up in the middle of the night mm. and uh, in a cold sweat, thinking, how could it happen? Mm. So everything was just awful. And how long did that last? It lasted seven years. Wow. Yeah, a long time. I was um, used to lie in bed watching Countdown, I remember. <laughs> it's a low point, even taking antidepressants and stuff like that. But then I started cycling, uh, which was a great thing because it uh, got rid of the depression and actually helped me think very clearly and I still cycle to this day I know this sounds stupid but it's very important that uh, you have the right bike and I've mm. got a road bike with carbon fiber and uh, it's a very fast bike and it's an absolute pleasure to ride and uh, it gives me a lot of pleasure and and if I had still be running ratness I wouldn't be having time to ride my bike for two hours every morning so that's a silver lining yeah <laughs> so I started doing that towards the end of the seven-year period and that got me into health and fitness I thought, well, this has given me such benefits uh, that I should start, I should get, I really believe in that. I know it's not, everyone's now into health and fitness. It was 1997, there was actually not even a health club near where I lived. Mm. And I thought, I'd open a lovely health club. I didn't have any money to do so. But um, I blagged it basically by selling membership for it before I'd raised the capital. And on the back of the fact that I put an advert in the paper and got 800 people to sign up for it, I was able to raise the cash. Mm. It was an innovative way of doing it. And, of course, if I sold that, uh, you know, tried to market that health club in the newspapers as I did and nobody joined, then I, there was no downside. I would mm. just walk away. Yeah. So it was actually quite a good way of... Uh, and everyone goes to these extremes of sort of market testing things with demographics and great, you know, intricacies, and they make the wrong decision in the mm. end. And this was the best way of market testing, something you could ever think of actually to sell it. And if I didn't sell it, I wouldn't have gone ahead with it. And it was very successful. And I, in fact, sold it for £3.9 million pounds wow. two and a half years later. And that made me feel really fantastic. And, and even though I'd made £3.9 million pounds before, I made a lot more than that, it didn't give me as... I get much more pleasure from this sure. than I ever did uh, in the past. Now, I've um, been making a couple of notes here because mm. one of the greatest privileges I get sitting in this seat is I get to learn all the time and I love learning and um, the, the, the title of this podcast this series because I know yes. you're not you're not so yet au fait with podcasts which yeah. is which is great which means there's still more people that can learn about yeah. these things the title is called the disruptive entrepreneur and uh, to me that 
exercise of selling something before you have it. Yes. And the bank won't work with you, so you have to go and create some collateral and some leverage so that the bank will. Yeah. To me, sounds like what being an entrepreneur is all about. I mean, it's risky, but maybe, but you did it. I think if you don't, I always believed, I was young and arrogant enough to believe that if I don't do things by the book, if I don't do what everybody else does, goes through the same channels as everybody else, start because eight out of ten businesses fail. And uh, if you start a business and you immediately buy fancy offices and, uh, you know, go through all the, all the costs involved in it, um, likelihood is that you're going to end up the same as everybody else because uh, mm. if 80% of them are going to fail... Surely the 20% that do succeed do it on a completely different basis. Sure. Um, indirect approach rather than the direct approach. Mm. So I've always believed in doing things a little bit off the wall. Mm. I mean, I used to, um, was a bit, I always also liked doing things that are a bit, bit close to the wind. Not, nothing ever illegal, <laughs> but sort of a bit fly. I remember uh, before we bought H. Samuel, uh, when I was expanding the Ratner stores, if we decided, for instance, we were offered a shop in Worthing, we weren't in Worthing, now the other directors saying, well, will Worthing be good? Will Worthing be bad? Uh, so very simply, I phoned up H. Samuel and said, this is head office here, which was not technically. Like, it was head office, it just wasn't their head office. Mm. And I said, uh, there seems to be a mistake on your figures last week. We've got 7,000 down. And they said, oh, no, 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 it's not 7,000, it's 12,500. Immediately then I thought, well, we'll go into Worthing. Mm. So that's something that perhaps the normal businessman wouldn't do sure he plays it by the book so i've yeah. always been against playing things by the book and i suppose when you run your own enterprise then you're not employed contracted you have a bit more freedom well yeah i mean i was running a public company i did have other directors that uh, would have wouldn't have been happy if the things i did uh, didn't come off um, but you did but, them anyway. <laughs> well, I always do feel at the time confident enough that uh, that I want to do well. And, and, and the difficulty was trying to persuade other people to go along with it because mm. uh, I worked with, without naming names, with people that were a little bit, maybe they had a hidden agenda, they wanted to be running the company or whatever. It was very difficult to get past them mm. as I wasn't the managing director at the time. So I did adopt a policy of basically ignoring them and just going ahead and doing things. Sure. you Just watching you speak, which was great, yeah. and, and by the way, if you've never seen Gerald speak, you have to see Gerald Thank speak. Thank you. Um, we just, uh, uh, we've got Tom who uh, runs the podcast and manages all of getting the tech side of it here, and he, he made a little note to us, which is no swearing because we don't want the E rating. Yeah. Um, the only but, swear word I use begins with C C R A. Hey, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, um, but honestly, really funny, really humble. So if you get a chance to ever see mm. Gerald speak or hire him as a speaker, absolutely. Thanks for that plug. Uh, no problem. You have I'm to. quite cheap as well. Well, I'm hoping Apparently. maybe you'll uh, mention us on Twitter or whatever <laughs> else. Uh, so you said, and, and I've heard this saying before, and it really resonates with me as an entrepreneur myself, is don't ask for forgiveness Beg for... Is it beg? No, don't ask for permission because it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Yes. So I don't tend to... Um, I think you can talk about things. You can have too many meetings. You can discuss it, uh, discuss things too much and it doesn't actually uh, achieve anything. If you mm. really believe you're going to do something, just go ahead and do it. And the, the biggest mistake um, that I, a friend of mine, uh, he says that he 
he's got three directors that are always arguing and they never agree with what he wants to do and he wants to do this deal, he wants to do it, and they won't do it and they, there's so much bureaucracy. And I said to him, I'll give you some advice. Don't keep consulting them because often when you consult people and it's not their idea, they don't like it anyway, just go ahead and do it and you'll have them queuing up outside your office door, frustrated and wanting to know what's going on and probably allowing you to do it. The worst yeah. thing you can do is continually consult with them. Yeah. I know that goes against everything about being... and being saying that you're autocratic and all that sort of stuff, but sometimes you have to be autocratic. Yeah. Well, I think in modern business with big data and analysing yeah. data of everything... I think sometimes you can get a bit overwhelmed with not being able to just make a strong decision. It's paralysis by analysis. Mm. The worst football managers are the ones that listen to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have the confidence to do it. The ones that are the best ones, the Alex Fergusons, the Arsene Wengers, mm. just get, they don't take any The truth mm. is they don't take any notice of the pundits or the everybody. They don't go along with what everybody's sure. doing. They continue to do things to irritate people and, they, you know, and, and people say, oh, how can they do that? And then yeah. they go and win the game. Yeah. And, you know. Do you think that view, some may call it slightly cynical, Yes, which is fine, do you think that view may have been hardened because of what the press did to you? No, I was always like that. I always believed that I wanted to be a maverick, that I wanted to... I didn't want to be like 99.9% of the population. Mm. To be that 0.1%, you have to be different mm. and you can't be conventional and you can't go along the normal channels. Mm. Uh, you have to be a bit outrageous. So I've always been like that. And That's uh, probably what got me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I asked you for some advice because yeah. we were doing a and a at the talk and I asked you for some advice and uh, uh, I certainly um, have been known to run my mouth off from time to time. And... Uh, could you maybe answer, ask, answer that question again? Yes. Which was for someone who's building their own brand, who maybe wants to, wants to leverage media, social media, yeah. et cetera, to build their brand, knowing that they're maybe a bit disruptive or they're a bit flippant yes. or maybe, like you, like to use humour or you know, don't, don't fear mincing words. Yeah. Any one time, one newspaper, one outlet could completely that t- turn that against you like they did with you. What advice would you give to someone, you know, wearing their heart on their sleeve and going out and trying to make a difference in the business world? Well, I think business is about, about actually getting people to not necessarily like you, not at all, but to actually believe in you, to think that this guy is somebody that we can back, that we can follow. And that doesn't happen by not having any charisma or personality, mm. a lot of people at the top are very amusing. They say things that are outrageous. But people actually think, hello, this guy is very, very bright, or girl. And uh, <laughs> be politically correct, which I'm not. Um, but the thing is that, uh, you know, by, being, by saying all the right things, by being Mr Perfect, like everybody else, I don't think that really inspires everybody. And mm. I think business is about persuading people, mm-hmm. selling. Yeah. Not necessarily selling the, in the obvious way, selling the product, selling yourself. Mm. Well, That's what we're doing all the time. Yeah. We're, we're promoting ourselves, we're selling ourselves in all different ways. Sure. And I think that you've got a, you, ha, you have got the charisma uh, and you, ha, you are sort of a bit um, colourful, if mm. you like, and that's why you've been so successful. I th- and I think, yeah, and some of it, some baggage does come with that, and mm. some risks comes with that. Exactly, mm. 
Uh, there's no question. And uh, at some point you might fall flat on your face like I did, but you'll probably be a better businessman for it like I am because mm. uh, you do learn uh, a very tough lesson. Sure. Okay, thank you. So two quick stories you could tell us if that's okay. Yeah. The story of the exact time when you knew what you'd said was going to hurt you. Well, Can you remember the exact time? Because obviously it wasn't out of speech, was it? I uh, got home thinking that it had gone well and I was very relieved because I was very nervous about the speech. It was a big thing for me. I got home and my sec- I didn't want to go back to the office because I was on such a sort of high or sort of buzz that I just couldn't go back to the normal. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon anyway. I just couldn't go. So I, I finally lay on my bed. I don't know why, which is something I never do at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and I got a phone call from my secretary. She said, we're getting a bit of bad press about your speech. How can there be any press? I've only just made it. Mm. But, of course, uh, with the Institute of Directors, you give a copy of your speech in advance, the press. And the Evening Standard had written it on page three, London Evening Standard. And it was a bit of fun article. They said he's known for his jokes and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, no problem at all. Mm. In fact, I quite liked it. Mm. Then I uh, was going out for dinner with a guy called Jeff Randall, who's uh, at the time the deputy editor of the the Sunday Times or Mm. business. Uh, I just happened to be going out for dinner. It was a prearranged thing. And on my way out, I was watching Sky News and I was on that. Um, And they were joking around on that as well. And I was beginning to think, "Mm, mm, mm." Uh, Then I went out for dinner with them. We were at a restaurant and there was press (laughs) outside the restaurant and and I'll be perfectly honest, I courted the press. Mm. I liked the press. They did me a certain amount of good. Ratners was out performing uh, Samuels and Ernest Jones because they had Ratners on the face because I was in the press. So I liked the press and uh, I was beginning to think, do I like this press so much? And I then, Jeff said to me, there's press outside that want to speak to you and... uh, after the meal, they said, do you regret saying what you said? And I thought, no, not really. It was just a joke and stuff. And they didn't really press it at all. So then I thought, well, I had a habit in those days of picking up the newspapers. That's how important the newspaper was to me, which is pathetic, at midnight from Piccadilly Circus. So on the, but I discovered that Victoria Station, you could actually get them at 11.30. <laughs> so I went to Victoria Station and I got a copy of The, of the Sun. The mirror was not out there. It was the News International papers because they were getting them early in the Times yeah. because they did a, they'd had this new printing thing. And it was a little column down the side of the time, uh, the, uh, the, the sun on the front page, but it wasn't much. It was pitiful, and I thought, oh, well, this is not a problem either. So then uh, my, I get out my house the next morning and my driver hands me, I don't know why, he hands me the mirror and the sun, which was on the front page of both. So the sun had, in fact, changed their front page because the mirror had run it as a front page story uh, with the mirror's headline, new 22-carat gold mugs, and the sun's headline was rottenness. The sun had gone absolutely berserk compared to the article that they originally planned because of the mirror. And it was on page three and page three. And I'm reading it, and it's all just not what I said. They said it's a jewellery. But, I mean, as I said, I don't blame the press. Uh, they're disingenuous, that's the way they are. They're not going to be selling lots of copies of papers if they just report things verbatim. Mm. But it was horrendous. And I thought, oh, this is bad. But then again, the next day, the sales only dropped by 5%, which is enough. But I thought if they only drop 5% the next day, from ne- it's going to now peter out. And next day it'll be 3%, next day it'll be flat, and mm. then we'll recover. 
But it didn't. In fact, it got worse because people, the word got around more and more mm. and the toxicness of it got much worse. And people do tend to not buy jewellery on impulse, which is what I thought. They actually spend a lot of time and a lot of people who'd committed to buying the jewellery carried on buying it because they'd made up their mind. But then after six weeks, sales dropped to about 25% and stuff like that. And right. It just got worse and worse. And it became impossible. Mm. Untenable, so, I think. Yes. So now let's go the other foot. Yeah. Tell me a story of the time when you knew you were back in the game, you were stood back up and you, you know, you were recovered, if you like. Well, I think it was because um, I'd... Uh, I'd uh, so the health club was great. And although we found this book warehouse that we were converting to this um, health club, um, in the, while the building was going on, I had a porter cabin in the car park. And I was sitting in this porter cabin and remember that only a few years before I was sitting in a Mayfair offices in Stratton Street in a sort of 60-foot office with wood panelling and um, now I'm in this porter cabin. <laughs> but somehow I felt very happy in that mm. porter cabin that I was back in business. I, I had a business. I was building a business from scratch. Yeah. And it was quite exciting. And then we were building the pool and every bit of it. And then we were selling membership. And I was actually taking the um, memberships to the post office at 4 o'clock myself. Well, of course, it was, I was the only person. And I was really getting a lot of pleasure doing all of that. Mm. And then, of course, when we sold it for, I sold it for £3.9 million pounds, uh, and used half of that money to launch a jewellery website, I was beginning to think, this is not so bad after all. You know, mm. I'm on my way back. Mm. And I was actually getting a lot more pleasure uh, from business than I'd ever got in my life before because it's human nature when you've lost everything, been through what I've been through, to, you know, close death experience, if you like, to, mm. uh, to actually survive and to, although business is nothing like the size it was, uh, you get a lot of pleasure from that. Mm. So what have you learned as an entrepreneur and a business owner in that? And if I could just put context to the question, yeah. because it's very popular, certainly in America, San Francisco, you know, Silicon Valley, blah, blah, blah. You know, fail, fail again, fail again. That makes you investable. Yeah. And then um, one of my mentors said to me, why don't you just learn through other people's failures? Surely that's a better thing than learning through your own. And, yeah. you know, I think that's the best way to learn, vicariously rather yeah, yeah, yeah. than yourself. Yeah. Uh, so w what two or three things could you say you really learned that would help other people starting up business or in their infancy of being an entrepreneur or going through a challenge in their business, which we all have? Well, I think that... Uh after losing all my money and having uh, a sort of carefree, cavalier type of approach to business in the early days and taking massive risks, uh, the fact that when I opened the health club that I was selling memberships before I even bought the thing, very careful to do that. So that was one lesson. So you kept, uh, well, you had no overhead and you had revenue, whereas it's the opposite now in business exactly, all the time. Don't, yeah, don't then just throw all the money on day one about and try and do a little bit of... Um, spade work before and um, without the risk, which you can do. Mm. Although, again, you have to be a little bit, uh, you have to blag a bit and mm. you, don't go, you don't go down I the normal I think they call channels. it innovative nowadays. Innovative, <laughs> yeah, um, rather than go down the And I, I also feel that, um, again, this is part of me, my DNA again that we've been talking about, is to do the unfashionable, to try and target something that nobody else is doing and the problem with everybody else well no i shouldn't say that it sounds very arrogant but the problem with 
that a lot of people do is that they just join the bandwagon and, you know, they think the internet's a panacea, everything has to be internet-based. Mm. Uh, but funnily enough, a lot of internet-based businesses are the first ones to fold. I don't care what you do as long as, you know, you do it well. Um, I've got a friend of mine who just sold his business. He's made coat hangers. It's not very high-tech or fashionable or trendy, but he's good at selling coat hangers and he mm. sold his business for about £60 million. So don't, you know, to to just do something that... And, and business is, is, needs a hell of a lot of detail in it. I've always compared business a bit to work of art. If you look at a painting by Canaletto of the Grand Canal in Venice, yes, he had a vision of this Grand Canal with the beautiful buildings and everything, but look at the detail that's in it. Mm. Look at the, 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 the men that are on the rowing the boats, all the, the way that the water's going, the waves, the paddles, the muscles, a huge amount of detail that goes into it. So it's all very well having a vision, which you have to have. But you can't just then think, well, you know, I, that's going to get me home. Business is sometimes quite boring and dull, and it, it involves a huge amount of work and getting every little bit right. And I see people in the jewellery business that have come in. And the reason, one of the reasons we took over H. Samuel is they called in a design company who thought that they could just sort of wave a magic wand, change a few colours, uh, but they didn't know the basics. And the basics in the jewellery business is we've always displayed our diamond rings at 42 inches from the ground because the average woman is five foot four and the trajectory of her eye falls at 42 inches. Mm. They were displaying watches. I remember these design companies who knew nothing about jewellery on the top shelf and the jewellery's quite small and it just didn't look right. So you've got to get the details right. You've got mm. to know the business. Um, so it's no, you know, sort of magic formula that I'm just going to join something that is very sort of trendy and I can't go wrong with a, like a bring out a new app or something like that, you know, because sure. it's flavour of the month. Yeah. Okay, so you talked, I wrote something down right at the start. You wrote two things. One, that you copied a competitor that was already doing it. I think yes. it was Newcastle. Yeah. And then also you said that the US market's very different. Yeah. So let's look at both of those. So d we've talked a bit about innovation and yeah. disrupting and doing different stuff, but yes. actually Ratners was almost kind of launched on copying another model that exists. Yes. Do you think that's a smart thing to do in business? Yeah, I do. I don't, I don't think there's any pride in uh, whatever you do if you're successful. And if somebody, when I was, um, you know, looking at uh, this guy Robert Anthony in Sunderland, Newcastle, all the evidence was there. Mm. He had, I couldn't believe I got a, train up to Newcastle, early train. I got there at 8 o'clock, which was too early before the shops were opening, and there were queues outside his shop but waiting for open. So I didn't need a lot more evidence <laughs> than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty obvious that what he was doing was right. Yeah. Uh, Funnily enough, he went bust a few years later because his margins were too tight. But nevertheless, mm. the main thing was we didn't have people in our shops. Mm. It's like a restaurant that's empty. Unless you do that, you don't get past first. Food. So yeah. I could see this was a way of getting people into the shops. Yeah. So it was pretty obvious. Sure. A lot of people have gone to America and failed. I just flew out and I was accused of, I remember in the Financial Times, in the Lex column, because I bought a business then with 125 stores of indecent haste. Yeah, it's been today, this business is probably bigger than Marks and Spencer's yeah. uh, because I bought the basis of a business that had fantastic management with a great formula. And how did I find that out? Just arriving in one day in America. Basically, in the, in the United States, the shopping mall, all the information is available if you want to buy, because Americans are so desperate to sell anything, that they, they'll give you all the information that you want. 
And I went into the office there in the mall, and every mall I went to, this company, Sterling, uh, they showed me all the sales figures. And Sterling were taking more money than every other jeweller mm. in the seven malls that I travelled round to. Yeah. So I thought, well, these people are onto a good thing. So, but he wouldn't sell his business, but I ended up paying him the most ridiculous price that everybody made fun of. Right. But today, those 125 shops are now 2,500 shops. Mm. Just all, all they did, unfortunately, I'm not there anymore, mm. but I built it up to 1,000 in the States, basically by just using that formula and repeating it. Yeah. Okay. Two more questions. Yes. So first off, uh, I want to say thank you. Well, thank you. If you could... Give your... So it was 25 years ago, was it something like that? that... It'd be 25 years in April, but I won't be celebrating it. Okay, no, of Mm. course, but you'll remember it. Yeah. So if you could go back 26 years... I wish I could. (laughs) What advice would you give to your 26-year-old younger self? Well, don't make any speeches at the Albert Hall. (laughs) Uh, Don't, if you get offered it, and if you do make a really boring, dull, businessy speech, don't try and be a comedian and be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, But, uh, you know, we were doing everything right uh, in terms of everyone in that business knew exactly what we were about. Mm. I think it's very important, you know, that your staff who are the... I know Virgin always say their staff are more important than their customers, they get a bit of criticism, but, but in a way... Uh, your staff are probably more important than your customers. I can say that now mm. without probably by, you know, because I can't upset people any more than I have upset <laughs> the customers. But it is a fact. Uh, and morale is very, very important. And mm. you'll only get that if everyone in the business is knows clearly what you're about. Mm. And everyone, we were based on price. We were yeah. based on aggressive marketing. Mm. We were based on sort of ruffling other jewellers' feathers, mm. uh, being very aggressive. And uh, everyone knew that, and everyone knew that we were there was no niceties, and that we wouldn't spend money on advertising or on design companies or fancy offices. Everything was down to the ticket price. Yeah. Everyone was clear about that. With managers used to come in at Christmas, and they because we were doing so well, they were completely bought it. And um, so we were all really very clear about where our, where we were going and what our targets were, mm-hmm. okay. and confident about it. Sure, great, and. I ask everyone I interview the same question. What do you think it means or the meaning of being a disruptive business person or a disruptive entrepreneur really is? Well, I think that, uh, you know, you have to do things in an unconventional way. You have to be talked about by your competitors in a derogatory fashion for somebody who's going to last about five minutes and go out of business because you do things in a sort of outrageous way. You have outrageous methods, Mm. you upset people, but you're clearly out for market share Mm. and that won't make yourself popular if you don't sort of join the club Mm. and uh, belong to their association and uh, be responsible. Um, So I quite enjoyed upsetting my competitors. Mm. And uh, But in the end, I didn't realise I was going to upset everybody else. Of course. Do you have any anything where people could follow you? Do you do Twitter or anything like that? Because I always like to give you the opportunity to... Thanks very much, but I don't do Twitter no. because I just don't feel that I want to pontificate every day. And knowing me, I will say something that I will regret <laughs> after I've had a few drinks or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I'll get into more trouble. Not that I can get into more trouble. I'm on Facebook. 
which I love. Right. Um, and even that, I've got into a bit of trouble with my wife with <laughs> posting pictures of her on holiday and stuff like that. So, uh, is that just your close friends, or can people follow your progress on that? I think I don't, as I don't know, as being in the in the business and in the internet business, I should know all this. But <laughs> I, do, I always get the settings wrong, and I've got a feeling that anybody can look at it. Yeah, not that I would advise them to, because it's pretty boring. There's lots of pictures of my dog, which I adore. <laughs> Gerald, I want to say... He never objects to anything. No, of course. (laughs) I want to say a final thank you. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your time. And uh, if you're listening and you're not yet following on Facebook or Instagram, you've got Rob Moore Progressive on Instagram and you've got Rob Moore Progressive on Facebook. If you search my name, you'll find them there. It'd be really great if you could submit a review because that helps us get the reach out. I don't know if you ever listen to those podcasts and there's loads of adverts. There'll never be any adverts on this. It's not a thing I do to generate revenue. I don't need that. I just want to get great people who can share great stories and give you great advice about being an innovator, being an entrepreneur, making a difference, making money as well for yourself, but making a, a bit of a dent on, you know, on your local, national, global or universal scale. So I want to thank you. If you think anyone could benefit from The Disruptive Entrepreneur, please share it on your profiles. I'd be very grateful. And finally, one more time, because Gerald did this out of the goodness of his heart and giving it his time away for free, because obviously the speech is gone. One more time, we'll say thank you, Gerald. It's been a pleasure, Rob. 